0: Hello Actuality Listener! I used an algorithm to create something I know you will like. Using 1,387 musical genres from a service called EveryNoise.com, click anything to hear what it sounds like. Deep Dance Pop Contemporary Post Pop Doomcore Dirty Texas Rap Classic Peruvian Pop throat singing.
1: Hi, everybody, I'm Sabri Benishore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholz from Quartz. And this is Actuality.
2: What you're asking can't be done.
1: This
3: is a futile effort.
2: If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It can't be done, obviously.
1: This season of Actuality... They said it couldn't be done. We are looking at stories of people doing things that other, maybe less imaginative people said were not doable. And this week, we are looking specifically at the impossible question of taste. De gustibus non disputandum. What did I tell you about talking your devil language on the radio? (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) Uh, Devil language aside, we're talking about the real devil's language. Software. Software algorithms or computer algorithms deciding what we want to see or read or listen to because that was a thing that they said could not be done outside of the movies you know computers producing or orchestrating culture and You can think of it as software influencing not just my taste, not just your taste, but the taste of millions and millions of people collectively. From books to politics you see on Facebook to Google searches, we today are going to focus on music.
3: And now that everybody is listening to music chosen by algorithms, what does that mean for the music business, for artists and labels,
1: and what does it mean for society at large? So in this episode of Actuality, we are starting at... Spotify, the music streaming service with 75 million users.
4: Welcome to the third floor, right this way.
1: We are at the U.S. headquarters of Spotify. We're in downtown New York. Uh, We're here with Matt Ogle, who's product lead for recommendation and discovery at Spotify. Hi. Hey. This office is really cool. I I actually don't know how I would describe, I feel like maybe like
4: Steve Jobs' living room maybe. Contemporary (laughs) IT. There is there's, there's definitely art. a Scandinavian vibe. You know, we are a Swedish company. Oh, I
1: notice all your conference rooms
4: have names. What is that? Yeah, so here on the third floor of our New York office, every room is named after a song. We uh, have a great room that we often hold you know meetings that might be hard meetings in called Good Times Bad Times. Man, I don't seem to care. In addition to being I think a great Led Zeppelin song, it's sometimes a useful room. Okay, Tim, can you
1: bring out your phone and can you pull up this thing that we call the Discover Weekly playlist? I
3: have brought it out. It is out. It is right here. We can see about my taste in music if you want. Matt, what is this
4: list? All right, so this is a playlist of about two hours of music that we create every Monday morning for each and every one of our users.
1: So, Tim, what's the first song on your list there? Uh, The first song on my list is the Montreal
3: Rock Band Somewhere. My Happiness, off the album Weird Little Birthday. Uh, this
4: is not a band or album I've heard of before. Matt, how did that get there? First of all, it's a great jam. I think you'll like it. It's all pretty. Right. It's pretty chilled out. That song is there because at least one, but probably many other Spotify users, added it to one of their own playlists, probably recently. And those other playlists they added it to had something in common with the music that you have been listening to recently on Spotify. And by putting those two things together, we go, all right, we think there's a connection between songs you've been jamming on and the song we know you haven't heard because we have the list of all the songs you've played.
3: Does the algorithm draw more from people who have similar tastes or playlists that are similar tastes to you or your actual, like, social map if you're, like you know, connected to Spotify through Facebook, for instance. I ask this because I have this paranoid experience where I've been over my friend's house and he starts playing a song that was on his Discover playlist and it was on mine, and now I'm panicking. And...
4: So believe it <laughs> or not, we don't explicitly look at social connections between users, mm-hmm. but in practice, the musical connections between people often do a better job of exposing the social links anyway. You know, internally, we have tools that could show, of all the millions of people on Spotify, who are the people that we think are closest to me in, in recent music listening. And invariably, when I look at that list, I actually know half of them.
1: <laughs> when you present uh, people with uh, the Discovery playlist, do you tell people how you came
4: about to your selections? or And if not, is that a problem? We do have an area where we, you know, have a sentence or two, um, but not everyone reads it. A lot of people just go straight to the music. Um, we also tried to personalize it in other ways. I mean, one of the when we were first uh, prototyping Discover Weekly, we had a challenge, which was we made a playlist image. It was uh, a man walking on the surface of the moon. We thought that was a good discovery image. We wrote <laughs> Discover Weekly on it, and then we were trying it, and we realized, oh, you know what? This thing looks like just another playlist our editors made um, so we use the oldest trick in the book we put your face yeah. on it so if you're connected to Facebook we pull your profile photo in um, and we actually tested that just to make sure it made sense and and turns out you are 17% more likely to stream music from that playlist if your face is on it which that is so funny makes sense yeah, perfect um, we actually uh, saw some people saying I can't believe it Spotify's chosen me to be the cover <laughs> you know, I'm the face of Discover Weekly this week check me out um, which you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can't really blame them. It was a new, you know, a bit of a new paradigm there. You so do work. that on April Fool's Day. Yeah, just pick one lucky person. Yeah, that's all. Them. <laughs> you guys also have a list called Fresh Finds. Do you want to sort of describe how that works? Yeah, sure. So unlike Discover Weekly, which is personalized to each and every user, uh, Fresh Finds is a set of playlists. And the goal of Fresh Finds is for us to say, here are songs or artists that we think are going to be big. my God.
2: That's my
4: baby. Um, so the way we identify songs that we think are going to blow up is we actually uh, crawl the music web. So we look at blogs, we look at review sites, we look at Wikipedia, we look at
1: news articles. And we meaning... Spotify. But, but I mean meaning like... Computer. A software program that you have written Yes, we, we, human hands
4: human hands have, have shaped uh, web crawlers uh, so <laughs> we take the information, um, try to identify are there users on Spotify who consistently seem to listen to this stuff that's buzzworthy that then goes on to become a hit. Hit makers We may have called them the hipster cohort internally. But, sure. <laughs> but never, never repeat that outside of this room I'm sure <laughs> Excellent, good are the human editors resentful of you and your uh, <laughs> discovery playlist? I'd like to think we all get along. Um, you know what? It's um, they're really trying to solve for different things. Um, if you imagine, you that's know, the the number of people that would be required to create seventy five million mixtapes every Sunday night, I think our human editors realize that's that's just a type of problem that they could never solve.
3: So one of the kind of themes of our season is they said it couldn't be done. You know, I think there was a sense that an algorithm could not find, you know, cultural items like that. And I'm just curious if you have heard that kind of criticism
4: in the past. And now that you're sort of beating it, how do you respond to it now? If you're trying to teach a computer to analyze a raw audio waveform and somehow decide if that raw audio waveform would be a good match to the one uh, you've just heard, it's probably going to fail. If you're talking about a computer being able to understand patterns in a huge treasure trove of information about how humans have put mixtapes together, then you get to something that's a little more interesting, and it becomes a question of, well, is that the computer doing it, or is that really just the power of millions of human beings doing what they do best, but at a different scale?
1: Awesome. Matt Ogle, Senior Product Leader for Recommendation Discovery at Spotify. Thanks so much for having us at your weird, cool office. (laughs) Thanks (laughs) for for
4: coming.
3: So that sounds less frightening than robots taking over our culture, right?
1: Yeah, it's more like amplifying and aggregating the feelings of a bunch of humans about their music. Leashing the hipster cohort to our own desires. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mush! Mush hipster <laughs> cohort, pull me to my musical fantasy. <laughs> oh, oh boy! But we still have one big question, which is how is this process changing the music industry?
3: Right. Spotify just delivers the music to you, but there's a whole world of people making and selling it in the first place. Uh, we called up Kiran Gandhi to see how the music business is deploying algorithms.
1: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hi, hi. Test, test. Hi, Kieran. Hello.
1: Kieran Gandhi. Kieran has worked for Interscope Records. She's been a touring drummer for MIA and Thievery Corporation, which is amazing, and uh, was a consultant for Spotify. Kieran, hi.
2: Hi, good morning. It's awesome to be here. You
1: did get to sort of see how um, Spotify's algorithm got to work. You got to actually look under the hood. But not everyone can do that. And do you think we're missing something when we're not part of the conversation?
2: Right. For me as a music person, for you both as music people, we would want to know that information. But think about it this way. Like, I don't care how Uber's algorithm works. Like, I just want the fucking car to show up and take me where I have to go. You know what I mean? Like, I don't—sorry, I don't know if I'm lots of curves on this thing. I just want the car to show up and take me where I'm going. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I think maybe that's kind of where we're at, which is that those— companies are sort of capitalizing on people's apathy, which is that they just don't care. They need the music to just be there playing in the background uh, while they're at work, while they're at the gym, uh, et cetera.
1: From your different vantage points, how have algorithms been used in the music industry?
2: Um, we're seeing a couple different ways. I think one of the most exciting ways is for A&R purposes. Um, a One that we talk a lot about... Uh, it's artists and repertoire, but really what it's come to mean is the finding and discovery of talent so that either labels or management companies can nurture this talent, develop it, and then hopefully uh, <laughs> sell great music. You know, traditionally, AR was people going out into the clubs, into a scene. Obviously, American Idol is sort of a modern day form of that t- traditional type of AR. But with algorithms, what we're seeing is being able to determine acceleration rates. Um, What's
1: an acceleration rate?
2: an acceleration rate would be like every single day I get two new followers, two, 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 because that's my normal sort of rate of me as an artist accumulating fans. But then on one day, I actually accumulate 100 new fans. You can actually see that from a dashboard. From an A&R perspective, it obviously allows you to scale the process. So instead of only being able to go to one or two or three clubs at night, you can be looking at an entire international dashboard to be able to make decisions about who you want to sign, who you might want to invest in, who you might want to manage.
3: And a lot of music fans and uh, and artists as well uh, kind of look at this data-oriented music future with some apprehension or anxiety. What's your take? Why, why are you optimistic, if that's true?
2: We want artists to be able to get their music out there, get people listening to it, and then using the more traditional business entities like a YouTube, like a management firm, like a label, to take them to the next level. I think that's where data can help because it de-risks the investment on the part of YouTube, the label, or a management firm to invest in these artists.
1: I guess I think maybe back in the old days, it was sort of some dude smoking cigars in a room, like talking about, you know, making the next artist this does, in a, in a weird way, kind of make it a little more transparent.
2: Yes, and actually, you, you got me thinking about something else that I love to talk about, which is this emerging trend of tribe culture. And I call it tribe culture because sometimes I'll go on to my Instagram or to onto SoundCloud, and I'll listen to something or I'll watch a video, and I'll be like, how is it possible that this person has one million followers? Like, who are these people? What I'm seeing is all sorts of very strange, unique, interesting music that maybe I don't relate to, still being able to find its tribe, its community, its audience online. And that did not exist 20 years ago because the labels had a very specific audience. There were only 40 songs at any given moment on radio that were playing. So all of us were listening to the same stuff. But how cool that, you know, a young girl in um, Nashville can have her audience that I would never know about. It, I love that. I think that's something that, that didn't exist before and that data is enabling.
3: So it's really exciting that all of these tribes are finding their own musical identities in the world but i guess do you ever wonder or worry that there's nothing that that brings all these people together
2: one thing that someone pointed out to me that blew my mind was this notion that because i was complaining about how the fact that 20 years ago all of us would just listen to the same stuff on top 40 and Mm. i was saying how awesome that we have SoundCloud, how awesome that we have access to just millions of songs and they said well consider this though Having everyone on the same page is also a good thing. This ability to go into an elevator and be able to talk about a song that an artist who we all know, just being able to bond with someone who you don't know over a similar song has a cultural importance to it.
1: At the same time, I mean, when you have centralized taste making, you also have
2: corruption it, yeah basically i mean <laughs> yeah, like, of course you know course. you only hear white people on the radio yeah yep
3: gatekeeping that's the word
1: Kieran gandhi is an artist in residence at stem which is a music tech startup in la she's also a musician and uh we are hearing her music now performing under the name madam gandhi The idea of gatekeeping that Karen just talked about is a real double-edged sword, because on the one hand, gatekeeping almost by definition amplifies our biases or somebody's biases. On the other hand, gatekeeping helps us have a shared experience. And when you turn over the decision-making or the gatekeeping to a machine, that trade-off and those questions don't go away, they're just different. And this is something that a guy named Ted Streyfus has thought a lot about. We called him up. Uh, Ted Strefus, associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and author of the forthcoming book, Algorithmic Culture. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, not a problem at all. Not a problem. When we hand over authority for making taste to machines, what are we giving up? One of the big differences here has to do with the extent to which
0: we don't know uh, very well the criteria by which services like Spotify, by which Google and Netflix and Amazon.com decide which goods they believe we should be interacting with. We very rarely get a chance to look under the hood and say, are these the best criteria by which to judge the worth of something and then to suggest that other people should be engaging with these goods? You know, Back in the old days, for better or worse, you could have a, an argument with a literary critic. But how do you have an argument with Google? You know, it's interesting that you say it's a black
3: box, but you can imagine in the past it was just as much of a black box when record execs or movie producers were making decisions about culture behind closed doors. Is there uh, something to be said for the
0: democratizing element of these algorithms, how they bring people's preferences to the fore? You know, again, I think we have to sort of question the terms here, right? We're often hearing about the idea of democratization of culture. And I do think that that is absolutely right. I think more people can have their tastes and preferences accounted for than was hitherto possible. But – I mean, at the end of the day, these are computer systems, but they are computer systems that are made by people. And, you know, people have biases, people have assumptions, people have backgrounds and histories. And in some ways, those get encoded into the algorithmic decision making. And I'll give you just one quick example. Mm. Um, Facebook... Assumes that I am incredibly close with my cousins. My cousins always come up in my newsfeed, and you know what? I have a good relationship with my cousins. But that's a hardwired assumption, isn't it? The idea that one should have a kind of preferential treatment for one's family in a social network, when in fact, you know, there are lots of people who have very significant disagreements with their closest family members. And so, you know, again, this is what we have to reckon with here: is the degree to which human decision making gets obscured in talking about this thing called the algorithm capital A. What are some, I guess, uh, tangible ways you see that playing out? The danger here is to begin to think about what it means to live in a world that is hyper-personalized, where we are very rarely taken outside of our comfort zone. I'm just curious because I think the big assumption
3: at the heart of all this is that people used to live in a world where their comfort zone
0: was frequently pushed culturally. Do we have good reason to believe that was the case? I mean, the way I would answer that question is to look at the media that were available. And so, you know, in the very early days of, of television, you know, there were only a couple of television channels and most of the television that was produced was really catered to a white and kind of like middle to upper middle class audience. We get into the 1960s. And suddenly, as, you know, television becomes democratized, you begin to see a proliferation of programming so that by the 1970s, you have a show like All in the Family.
3: Mister Are you sure there isn't something else that's causing you to cancel tonight? Huh? Well, I mean, you can be straight with me because, frankly, we're having problems with my old man. Yeah, what's the matter with him? Well, he's kind of old fashioned, you know, says he just doesn't want to sit down with Whitey. <laughs> Get over it. I just want to make sure you didn't cancel because my folks are black.
0: No, no. You know, and that's a very, you know, different kind of programming than some of the programming that we see today that is, you know, not intended for, you know, an audience like that. I mean, this was a show that was, I believe, shown on CBS television, which was, you know, that was the, the Tiffany network that everybody was watching in the mid 1970s. And now, you know, we live in a world of hyper narrowcast channels, the golf channel, and also then, you know, specific kind of apps that are now directing us to particular types of programming, right? So, you know, Netflix allows us to hyper personalize and to craft the television shows and the movies and those kinds of things so that we can avoid those broadcast interactions that were typical of the third quarter of the 20th century. When you think about the data-driven TV networks now like
3: Amazon or Netflix, they're often producing things that transparent or like Orange is the New Black, voices that you might not see on mainstream TV. And yet I guess the, the concern is that people aren't being forced to watch that on mainstream TV. It's just available sure. for
0: whatever audience is there to me, the most important lesson to take away is that one needs to approach these services critically and also then to probably make the extra effort to try to seek out things that are above and beyond the culture, the music, the movies that are offered to us as a path of least
1: resistance. So moral of the story is once in a while, listen to the types of music that you don't like and Check in on your crazy relatives' Facebook pages just to see what the other bubbles are thinking. Yeah, I think you hit it dead on.
3: You know, maybe Facebook's algorithm is more advanced than you think, and they're suggesting you spend more time with your cousins
1: (laughs) for a reason.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you're absolutely right.
1: Ted Streyfus is associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado Boulder and author of the forthcoming book, Algorithmic Culture.
0: Again, ends and Tim. I've got a couple more genres for you before you wrap up. Turkish classical. Our spiel.
2: Master control program, or wie das heißt.
0: Vintage Swedish pop. Five band.
1: So, Tim, there was a time when people said that machines could not produce culture. What have we learned about that today? Well, what we've learned, I
3: think, is this trend towards algorithmically selected culture, software robots
1: telling us what we'll like, has costs and benefits. Yeah, on, on the one hand, it allows artists that would maybe never find followings to find them, and it sort of democratizes our collective musical taste. And on the other, it seems
3: like we lose a little something of that mass cultural experience when everybody is just sort of in their own silo and there's
1: nothing sort of bridging the gaps across all those little bubbles. So. To get back to this idea of, you know, they said it couldn't be done, that a machine could never choose the music or produce our cultural content, couldn't produce culture or taste. So I think the thing that we've learned is that they they aren't actually doing that. It's still human brains that have tastes, right? Machines are amplifying what humans are thinking. It's saying here, human, this is what other humans like you listen to. That's different from supplanting culture. It's really... Amplifying it. So
3: the next time you're upset with an algorithm, don't blame the robot. Blame, blame yourself. Your friends. Blame <laughs> your friends. <laughs> we want to try a little experiment in old-fashioned hand-curated playlist
1: making. Because we can't afford algorithms, so we're going to do it by hand. We, <laughs> we've created an interactive uh, music playlist. It's on our Twitter page.
3: Uh, that's at Actuality Pod. And we're going to invite everybody who wants to to add a song or
1: two to the playlist on our season's theme. They said it could never be done. So, what do you listen to when you're trying to do something that has never been done before? Yep, just like that.
3: Um, So send that along, and we'll share the results with you guys and probably be listening to it as we try and come up with ideas for our next episodes. And speaking of, if you want to give us
1: some commentary on this episode— Or ideas for future ones, which we would love to hear, you can email us at mpqz at marketplace.org. Or, as Tim mentioned, on Twitter, we are ActualityPod. And uh, we want to thank, uh,
3: especially on our return to form with for this new season, our producer, Claire tennis And
1: Marketplace's senior producer, Sitara Nieves. And the uh, New York Bureau Chief, Deirdre Depke. And thanks to our engineers, Brad Fisher and Jake Gorski. Uh, and special thanks to Quartz's Adam
3: Pasek, who reported two great stories on how Spotify makes their algorithms work and inspired this episode.